could do worse. Uh, you know, ways of starting this discussion about this movie than starting by talking about Franco Nero. Yes. Whose name I was probably peripherally aware of, but when I was doing the London Film and Comic Con a few years ago, he was signing, uh, you know, doing autographs of, of, of photographs of him from stills of him from films. Uh, if you know the London Film and Comic Con, it's full of tables and tables of these stars of various magnitudes. Yes. And he was of such a magnitude that he was on the same level as me, like on the same floor <laughs> as me. But actually, uh, that was the same floor that Christopher Eccleston and people like that were on. So he was he was a major luminary. Anyway, there I was flogging my various books, The Final Detective, check them out, Script Doctor, my book about Doctor Who, and uh, my Rivers of London graphic novels. But I left all that behind and I walked across, all the way across the convention centre, and I got you a Franco Nero to uh, some autographed autographed photos. You did indeed, and I think I gave you instructions with regards to which photos are available. Yeah, I think it was Kinoa, is that what it's called? Kioma. Kioma was one of the films. And was that the one I got? Yeah, you did. Well, um, he's got a Gatling gun on it, I think. Yes. Fabulous. He was a really nice guy. And the only terrible thing was, as I put the freshly signed photograph away, I managed to smudge it. <laughs> I, I hadn't even noticed, so it's fine. That's... But, <clears throat> I was so disappointed that I couldn't be there that day. I uh, wanted to meet Franco Nero for over 20 I years. I told him that. I think he said something like, well, why isn't he here then? <laughs> <laughs> no, he was really nice, very charming and funny. And I was delighted that I could at least be there as your proxy because I know how much these things yeah. mean. I was I was well chuffed with that photo. And I adore Franco Nero partly for this film, partly for Kioma. Oh, partly, um, <clears throat> when you say partly for this film, the film we're about to talk about, Street, yes, street Law. Law. Okay. So... This is an Italian, I would call this an Italian cop movie, but it's not really, that's what I thought it was going in, because it's got a picture of Franco Nero on the front with a shotgun, and I thought, okay, he's a cop on the edge. <laughs> and I, I figured it was going to be like, uh, you know, I, in fact, I thought it was probably a buddy cop movie where they bust all the bad guys. It's not, it is a crime film, but it's not that at all. No, it's uh, it's more in line with Death Wish. Yeah, it's a vigilante movie. Um, it's so hard to know where to begin. Now that we've been watching, I've watched a bunch of these movies which you've so cruelly imposed on me, there's a certain pattern emerging. And insofar as it, it's a tension between the movies that are really well written, like very, very well, they might not be great in any other way, but the scripts are very soundly constructed. And the rather, if I may put it politely, the more wayward scripts. Yes. And for instance, there's a film called Thriller, a.k.a. They Call Me One Eye. I've got lots of issues with the script in that and some other movies we've seen. I feel that this one falls into that camp because although it seems to be quite a straightforward story about a respectable citizen goes vigilante against some bad guys, the script's just... Uh, it's shambles. <laughs> it is. Um, oh, you agree with me? I'm no, astonished. It's a number of set pieces, and the set pieces themselves are fantastic, but the linking material is not. Oh, well, that, no, now that you say, I'm just rewinding in my head thinking, yeah, I mean, the set pieces are good. So that may be a, a good way of describing what the deficiencies are. I mean, starting with the opening titles alone. Which oh, look, just... the opening of this movie is fantastic. <laughs> and, okay, one of the things that hit me was when they made this film, we'd reached a point in the technology of cinema where the cameras and equipment was lightweight enough that you could actually go to places and film as opposed to being in a studio somewhere and building a set which might might look great but generally looked phony as anything well the majority of italian cinema even the good stuff is almost always location there were very few studios in italy and if there were they were expensive and that was a big thing for your budget but Cinecita. 
you didn't necessarily have to get a permit to film. You could just go anywhere so, and shoot. What, so you, what you're saying is that the, the, the Italians have been shooting movies like this for decades? For some time, yeah. I mean, oh. um, even, I would imagine a lot of sort of De Sica stuff and uh, Fellini stuff so wouldn't you necessarily say, have had permission. So everything from the neorealist films on? Yeah. Was, oh, I didn't realise that. Because, you see, there would have been a period in England, certainly, and in America too, where a lot of the stuff would have been studio-bound. Yeah. No, the neorealist stuff, because it's so low budget, I mean, half the time, you know, you're, you're using whatever film stock you've got laying around. So it's so nothing you... to do with the lightness of the cameras, because back in the 50s, yeah. the late 40s, early 50s, those would have been monstrously large. They wouldn't have even been using the good cameras. Maybe some of the later Fellini oh, stuff, yeah. Because but... you could be using newsreel cameras. <clears throat> there were lightweight yeah. cameras, but they weren't for motion picture yeah. work generally. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these, some of the earlier Italian things, you know, if you go to sort of late 50s, uh, early 60s, some of the low budget sort of the underground stuff that will be shot on multi multi uh, grain films so you'd sometimes you get some super eight footage within a film sometimes you get 16 sometimes you get 35 mil a mixture of different standards <clears throat> yeah That's which must have been hell to edit <laughs> but also is a nightmare to restore so because uh, you need point... a different technique for each section yeah. and so with regards to certainly some of the uh, castellari stuff which is what we're watching now Cernzo castellari is the director of this one uh, a couple of his early ones use two different film stocks, just because well, whatever was available. Well, I think that might be to do with something that I've heard from American filmmakers that you could get. I, they were called something like they weren't called bin ends because that's wine. that's exactly what it is though. But, it, yeah. but it's it's the if somebody hasn't used a full reel, yeah. there's some leftover bits, and you can get them cheap or free. You can, and the trouble with that is that you've not got a lot of time to shoot, so you can't overshoot a film at all. So sometimes you have to go with a take regardless of whether it's satisfactory or not. Because you've only got so much film in the camera. <clears throat> yeah. Interesting. Uh, but So you were talking about, we're all over the place here. <laughs> yeah. There's lots, lots to talk about. Enzo Castellari. I, I got this, you lent me this movie. Uh, I saw Franco Nero. And I thought, okay, I've got this. I know what this is going to be. Franco Nero as a, an Italian cop on the edge. So first, the first surprise was an Enzo G. Castellari. I love the, the G. It's because there's so many other Enzo Castellari. Girolami. That he might, oh, how interesting. <laughs> yeah. who, he, with whom he might become confused. Uh but I knew that name because through Tarantino, through Inglorious Bastards, because the original Italian version. Oh, well, so and he did. Uh, oh, no, he didn't direct Django, did he? Sorry, no, that was Franco Nero was in Django. No, Enzo didn't do that. Sorry, my but mistake. he's got, he's got quite a track record of those kind of films. Yeah. Enzo Enzo Castellari. So I thought, okay, well, this is very interesting. And you're talking about the beginning of the movie. Well, to get back to what I was saying about the realist cinema. There came there was this sea change, and certainly in the UK there was a movie like Peter Yates's Robbery, and that's what this reminded me of. It very kind of documentary style shooting of this, the crime stuff going on, and it's the beginning is fantastic. It's like this um, shot from the floor looking upwards. Uh, it's this low angle shot of these guys using these giant bayonets to pry a door open. These burglars, but this is where you and it's so it's all very compelling. They race into this guy's flat, and they don't seem to be robbing it; they just seem to be trashing it. Yeah, and like this is where the the script begins to fray already because the way the story progresses is as follows: you see this guy's flat get robbed and trashed by these crooks. Then you see a whole series of very brief vignettes of crime happening, like a, a jewel merchant being robbed, uh, some guy gets shot outside. You know, all these things, and they aren't really germane to the story except in the sense to create a, a feeling of a world that's out of control where the crime, criminals can do as they please. Then it settles down, and we have Franco Nero 
uh, who's putting money in the bank. He's, it's not a bank, it's a post office, but the same kind of thing. He goes into his post office and he's handing money to be paid into his account. And then these bad guys turn up. They rob the post office. I'm, I'm racing through this because I'm sort of getting to a point. Okay. And they, they, kick, they shoot the place up and they take a hostage as they flee, which is, of course, poor old Franco Nero. And they beat the hell out of him and they throw him out of a car. And he's very traumatised. And eventually he ends up uh, becoming the vigilante, as, as our listeners might have guessed, and going after the bad guys. But then as the story progresses, it turns out that that flat that was broken into at the beginning was his flat. Yeah, and I don't understand whether it's meant to be a throw forward. You know, this is something that happens later when they're trying to find him. Because you remember they burned down his flat. Yeah. So I don't know if that's... Oh, that's... You, you see, yeah. that would make perfect sense. Yeah. But it doesn't really make sense until you get to that point in the film, because by then you've forgotten oh, all that. And there would be, like, a more accomplished director, dare I say it, would have found a way of making this real... of those pieces of the puzzle to slot together. But okay. that still doesn't work, because when he's back in his flat later, that the, the, Italian's Rebel newsprint, which is in a frame, yeah. has, has been burned. That's, what, that's it. I so, knew yeah. that there was some... Yeah, there, there was some definite physical reason to think that that flat had been attacked and burnt before... The uh, before yeah. the post office robbery. So I mean, he his insurance premiums must be yeah. unbelievable. No, but, but also the guys. I'm not sure that the guys who break into the flat at the beginning are the are the bad guys. No, it's a different crowd. So, well, that was such a wonderful theory, but it didn't quite pan out. No, no, this is something that's bothered me a lot. Is that I can't quite work out what the intent well, was. Well, I think it might have been. There might have been various drafts. There might have been one draft where it was going to be like that, and they changed it, but. That would be so much better and so much more satisfying than what we've got. Yeah. So what we've got is this guy who's, who's got sort of like two reasons to be a vigilante. One of them completely unexplained, the burning of the flat, which would make loads of sense. Well, they break into the flat with the intention to steal stuff, but there's not a lot in there worth stealing. So they, I believe, if memory serves, they take yeah, some of his suits. The, uh, well, yeah, it's really stupid. But your theory, because what happens later on is that as our hero begins to close in on the bad guys, they strike back at him yeah. by uh, burning down his flat, which... That leads me naturally to the next thing I wanted to discuss. What they should have done is kidnapped Barbara Bach. Yes. Because attacking his property is so much less has so much less impact than attacking the woman he loves. But on the other hand, I was kind of glad that they didn't because I could live without that trope of the helpless woman yeah. being abducted. But what I'm getting at here is, in this movie, there's an actress called Barbara Bach, B-A-C-H, who is best known to me because A, she was a Bond girl, B, she married Ringo Starr. I mean, but these are classic <clears throat> credentials from the 60s and 70s. But she's gorgeous. And like, in the in the interview, which comes with this disc, Enzo G. Castellari rather ungallantly says, she wasn't the world's greatest actress. Well, I think that's kind of irrelevant, because what is clear is the camera loves her. She yep. has great screen presence. And you think, oh, wow. how You've got Franco Nero, who's terrific, again, very charismatic. You've got her, you think, wow, what's going to happen? Nothing. She, she's his wife and she appears in a couple of things. Her, her function is basically to say, oh, you shouldn't be a vigilante. <laughs> That's basically it. But I was thinking, you know, my first thought was the, the cliches that perhaps the bad guys would go after her. Then I thought, wouldn't it be great if she became part of the uh, vigilante thing? If she joined him in it, like they should have given her something to do. She was very potentially a star. She's there to sell the film to America. So you can stick her on a, a poster. A recognisable actress, yeah. Yeah. And this is what happens in a lot of these films from around this but period, is that you get these actresses in. With no role. With, with no, no role, yeah. yeah. They're, they're purely there to be in a few scenes and sell in that country. So the idea is you get a multinational cast 
and then you can sell your film in loads of territories, which is, it worked. You know, it worked for uh, Argento, yeah, it works for... My point is, you've got her on the set. You've got yeah. Barbara Bach on the set. Your script's a mess anyway. You're probably rewriting it from day to day. Give her some stuff to do, like, you know, get her to beat up a bad guy. Or... Anyway. As Castellari says, she ain't much of an actress. So the more you give her to do, the worse things The more exposed... Get. No, but I, you see, I don't buy it because she has these scenes where she delivers this rather boring dialogue about to her husband... And she's perfectly fine in them. She isn't the world's greatest actress, perhaps, but she was far, f- totally convincing. And I would have thought if somebody was going to screw up, it would be during a long dialogue passage. You know, I'm just... Maybe she could run and jump. Because the, the thing is, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've gleaned, Franco Nero does his own stunts. Hell yeah. It's wonderful. Because I, I thought that he'd done 95.9% because there is a bit where the guy, I think it's a Mustang, there's a car, which I think is a Mustang, is pursuing him and somebody does this really good roll off the car. It's as him. it, And I thought, because everything else in the sequence is clearly Franco. And I thought, if they were going to double him for something, they would have doubled him for that because it's very scary. But they didn't even double him for that. It didn't look like they doubled him. This is what I love about this film. Is, yeah. And this is what I love about Franco Nero, is that you cannot fault his dedication. Yeah. And those sequences look horrible. I mean, he's the dust is in his eyes. You can tell that he's not comfortable. His eyes are bloodshot. He's being shot. pursued by a car down a dusty road, and it's sort of, it's sort of nudging him and knocking him it over. It keeps and... fishtailing into him yeah, and knocking that's him exact, over. That's a good description. Of and then ultimately knocks him down the side of a... Sort of small and cliff. He, yeah, he goes down the cliff. When he goes down the cliff, I'm sort of reminded of that episode of The Simpsons where Homer <laughs> falls down the cliff out of the back of an ambulance. But there's a better bit than that. I mean, in a way, it kind of speaks to that that the Catholic iconography of Italy and that the hero is tormented and almost crucified and, and he's subject to, to gruesome um, harassment. Because earlier on in the film, the bad guys beat him up in this huge puddle at, at, is it yeah. at night? And that's a fantastic sequence. Which very striking seems sequence. to be designed to just have him later on covered in that clay, the dried clay. So that he I, I think it's purely for appearances. Like. Yeah. Yeah, but but if it if it was for that reason, then it it reaps huge bonus benefits because when they the, having him in that puddle is just great visual. I think it I've is. jotted it down somewhere. Okay, so I'm looking at my notes now. You can talk for a little while. I can. The um, the other thing that I find interesting about this is that the, the picture that's on his wall that we referred to earlier is a newspaper headline which says Italians rebel. Well, I thought that was going to have some significance in it. Cause well, it does. He is pushed and pushed and pushed and then he finally starts to fight back and that is him rebelling because oh, okay. the police aren't interested. And I don't know if you noticed, the music only comes in when he rebels. So the music isn't actually in the film at all for the most part. It's only when he has these the film, moments. The, the music in the film because... Um, it was the first thing I noticed. Like, there's this great harmonica theme, isn't it? Yeah. It's like classic 70s cop movie uh, uh, style theme, but it goes beyond that. I really loved it. It's the Angelus Brothers, I believe. Guido Maurizio and the Angelus. The, the, the music is terrific. Love yeah. the music. Uh, so, Street Law, let's just, should we read my notes? Uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a really good line in it. I forget who says it, but it, he the, he says the only thing I feel bad about is that I'm not someone else. It's one of the crooks. Yeah, yeah in fact, it's the it's the crook who becomes a sort of side quick. Yeah, which is very strange. Partly again, there's your buddy cop thing that you were looking for. Yeah. Is that you do have that, and it it doesn't work because this guy is clearly an asshole. But for some reason, it's, Franco befriends him, and we're suddenly meant to think he's a good guy. It's a very strange. But I just want to linger on that line because it's a really great line. He said, 
the only thing I feel bad about is that I'm not someone else. It's yeah. a wonderful line from this scumbag criminal. So, uh, okay. Oh, yeah. I've written Money Changing Hands in the Shadows. There's this really cool shot where there's some uh, illicit business going on. And when the money's being passed over, Castellari has just shot it so you see a, ref uh, a shadow of the hands and the money on the ground. I just thought that was a really inventive, clever way of doing it. Castellari has a real eye. And you'll see it more in Kioma when we do that than oh, you would in Street Law. Fantastic. Street Law just has these lovely action sequences. But it does have, I mean, there are still moments of brilliance in there. That shot uh, toward the end when he gets to the warehouse and the lights come on. And he, he loops the footage a few times so that the lights keep coming keep, on right way through. On, yeah. You've got the music comes up as well. It's a lovely shot, isn't it? I really like that sequence. Well, I, the next thing I've written again is the beating in the big puddle. Which I think what we're coming... You have a filthy mind. <laughs> Sounds uh, like a Marillion album. <laughs> but what we're talking about is Castellari's eye. Again, so he, he thought, oh, well, that's, instead of just having a beating, let's put it in this this, this huge puddle at night. Well, it's all down to humiliating uh, Franco Nero's character. Yeah. And this is what he goes <laughs> okay. through. And this is why he finally breaks up. So all of his beatings are, have an added level of humiliation. Well... And because he wears such pristine suits, he's a very fashionable guy, and there's a lovely credit on the end for Franco Nero's suits. That's great. The, the more his clothes get ruined, the more he gets it's ruined. It's symbolic. And it works. I, I, I think you're missing a trick on that one. Well, but I've written, why does he go after them with no weapons and no plan? Because he does. He just, he just sort of like goes mm. and lets them beat him up well, again. Well, he fucks up. It's much the same as Death Wish, which I believe the two were in production at the same time, so it wasn't an Italian knockoff of Death Wish because they came out around the same time. Um, in Death Wish, Charles Bronson, it doesn't go well the first time. His first attempt at revenge. Yeah, but he, he takes really a gun with him, doesn't he? He does. But, um, he has a plan. Our man does not have a plan. His plan is to go in and say, here I am again, beat me up. Well, what would your plan be? Yeah, the guy's humiliated. He's a bit desperate. He's determined to do something. He's you always defend these terrible plot holes. No, I, I think this works as a character piece in that he's um, you know in poker terminology he's full tilt. He's he's finally he's reached a point where he's not thinking straight. He's reacting, and it's not well, until he sits down and thinks this I, I through. I would be willing to accept that if it had been sold to me by the film, but it wasn't. What I've written no. here is what is this? The Vanishing, and just to fill the listeners in, The Vanishing is a movie. Well, there was a Dutch original, and then there was an American remake. But the essence of this movie Spooloos. is... Uh, beg your pardon? Spooloos, I think it was called in... The, well, the, the novel it, that it's based on, I think it's a Dutch novel, is called The Golden Egg, and which is... You think, oh, that's a dumb title, but we're going to go down a rabbit hole here. The, so the Vanishing <laughs> is about this guy whose girlfriend disappears, and she's disappeared because the serial killer killed her. And he goes to the serial killer and says, show me what you did to her, right? And so... Goes, oh, okay. So he buries him alive in a coffin, <laughs> and all the, this guy has is I think it's a match or it might be a cigarette lighter, and there's the flame, and the flame's the golden egg. So that's but this, this sort of fatalistic masochism is what I felt Franco Nero was doing. You know, beat me up, beat me in a puddle, you know, bury me alive. They don't bury him alive, but I'm just exaggerating. I think it's more a question of um, he he tries and tries. Yeah, he keeps coming back for more, and eventually it works. So maybe this this message of Italians and rebel and um, vigilantism is being sold as it won't always be easy, but if you keep persevering at it, it will get better. Because sometimes he's on the ball. Look at the situation where he's conned with the guns, where uh, Tommy brings him the... He basically breaks off loads of bits of aerial and wraps him in a blanket. Yeah. He's onto that in no time. 
well, the thing is, that's because it's just a very uneven script, I, I would True. say. Uh, what I've written down here is, as with the man who haunted himself, we're, it's got this fantastic photography of real places. That, in that case, it was London. In this case, it was some coastal Italian city. Do we know what city it is? I assumed it was Naples. Yeah, I? yeah, quite possible, because there's a chase along the Lido, which is the seafront. But And again, none of that has permission. They stole it. As, uh, that's the Basically, term you, you Very, use. very few stealing Italian shots, films of this period will have permission to film even those chase sequences. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of it is, we'll shoot now with whatever film we've got, and then we'll shoot some more tomorrow, and then some more tomorrow. But as with Basil Durden's The Man Who Haunted Himself, you can look, look at that film and say, oh, wow, that's what London actually really looked like yeah. at the time. And this is the same for Naples or wherever yeah. it is in Italy. What I've then written about, uh, I said it's a fascinating time capsule. Next, I have Barbara Bach. Barbara Bach has tremendous screen presence and is criminally underused. She should have helped him hunt the bad guys down or been kidnapped by them or been one of the bad guys herself. I like that. I like the idea of her being a bad guy myself. She needs to be at the centre of the story. She's ravishing. The camera loves her. So I think all of that would have dragged away from the realism. And I, I mean, the realism is you know, on a knife edge as it is, but um, I think it would have made it... Less of a vigilante film and more of a that's true a mainstream film. Because this has aspirations to being like a almost a documentary style story torn from today's headlines. Yeah. Whereas in fact, Barbara Bach would have moved it towards almost like a spy movie vibe. Yeah, I. I but if you're going to have her, my argument is if you're going to have her, in, go Phil Tilt. <laughs> yeah. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Phil um, Tilt. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I loved, sorry, I've broken your chain of thought, but while it's broken, I'm going to get in there. And one of the things I loved about this process of watching this film and, and preparing the discussion was I sent you what I thought might be a really cryptic email <laughs> of the, about Paul Weller yeah. being a real bastard. And, but you immediately got it. You immediately understood that I was referring to the, uh, the distinguished Italian actor Romano Pupo. Pupo, who is in almost all of Castellari's films. That's wonderful. Because he, he does look like, a bit like Paul Weller with a really dodgy mullet. But he's a real bastard in this. Yeah. I think he's also a stuntman. So he does um, a fair few stunts in later films. The trouble with Castellari's films is you can't really tell stuntmen from actors because <laughs> pretty much anyone has to do their own stunt. Well, yeah, but like Franco Nero himself, the big star, it's extraordinary. It works so well. And the, the damage that could have come to that man during those sequences is terrifying. Yeah. And it's a sequence that really needs to be seen to be believed because... You mean the bit where he's bouncing off the Mustang? Yeah. yeah. It's just insane. And you just watch it with but an open he, mouth thinking... He's interviewed is... about this years later uh, on, on the, the extras and he just comes across as such a great guy. I know. He just doesn't give a shit, does he? It's just uh, a question of whatever the film needed. I've written... The story is bizarre and borderline incoherent. Were they tripping? With regards to which bit? Because... I think when we get to the end, things have become very mainstream and you've just basically got wow. the usual showdown, which never makes any sense to me, where you've got people shooting at each other in a warehouse for no readily apparent I mean, reason. Just to give you, our listeners a flavour of how this guy, how this differs from Death Wish, for instance, which was an American film with Charles Bronson as a vigilante, uh, the way that Franco Nero's character in this goes after the bad guys is he sort of, he trashes his own office and then disappears pretending that they've kidnapped him. <laughs> and somehow, miraculously, this is applies such pressure to the police, the police who've been either laissez-faire or uh, explicitly corrupt suddenly have to crack down on the criminals, as if any of this could ever work. It, well, it's kind of, it's a good plan in theory, because <laughs> the police you are corrupt. You always defend this stuff. Well, it works. It, it, it puts an end to the police corruption. But it wouldn't work in the real world. It, or it, it worked in not, the film. Yeah, but it, it didn't convince me for it. 
anything. <laughs> this is Enzo Castellari and Barbara Bach. As an actress, she may, maybe she wasn't extraordinary, but she showed up on time. <laughs> It, well, listen, I, I want to make a point that that's so unfair because I the whole thing I've been arguing is that she's she lights up the screen and they should have done something with it. But I think that quote says all you need to know about her involvement in the film is that she was only there for appearances. They didn't really have much time for her. So what's the point of her having a larger role? She's only there. It would have been a better movie. But, she's just know, there to go on the poster. No, no, but I just I mentioned that yet again as a corrective to that rather cruel comment from the director. I mean, we are likely she to showed touch up on... on time. A few more Italian films during this, and you'll find well, this recurs where you get English actresses, English sorry, American actresses, both English who turn up in these films and actresses. are solely there to add to the poster. Mm. Same goes for some of the actors as well. But There's a lot of people have that want to see them. Anyway, um, speaking of other Italian films, in the interview with Franco Nero, he's talking about the uh, the Maurizio. I'm sorry, I blanked on the name of the brothers who did the Maurizio, Guido and Maurizio De Angelis. De Angelis, the Angelis brothers. He'd worked with them on a number of films, and his yes. method was he would he would discuss the sort of music he wanted. This is the 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 star Franco Nero would do this, and he said for High Crime, which was the previous crime movie he had made with his team, yeah. he'd cited Quincy Jones, and he said for Kioma, Leonard Cohen. Do you know what? That makes perfect sense because uh, you haven't heard the Kiyoma soundtrack yet, have no. you? No. Wow. I'm looking forward. But I, want, but I also want to, and because I'm a glutton for punishment too, I want to see High Crime as well. High Crime's not so good, but it, it's interesting. There's uh, Day of the Cobra is, I think, the last collaboration they had. And that one has a cracking soundtrack. He didn't cite an influence for this one. Maybe he just, just let them... Uh, uh, bu -bu -bu -bum. I mean, by this stage, they were quite well known as a pop act as well. So they they, the they were selling Angelus. albums. Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. I, I I think he just I'm not sure if he gave them any steer for this one or what. But I I love the music in this. I must get the soundtrack and and I want to listen to those other films. It's hard to get. Good luck with that. It's it, going to be expensive. Oh yeah, is yeah. it on vinyl? Oh, it would be, wouldn't it, from yeah. that period? Yeah, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? I don't think it had a vinyl release at the time. I think you've got to buy some oh, awful Death Vaults thing. No, I, I'm sure they must have released it. I'm not sure they might. But uh, you know, anybody out there who has an original vinyl copy would like to send it my way. I would be very grateful, and I'd be say very nice things about you on this podcast. He'll pay a minimum of fifty quid. Fifty quid for a rare soundtrack, you know, in great shape. I would happily do that. I would happily. If you, that was meant to. To scare me. You're insane, <laughs> you're, sir. You're sitting beside that, that Blue Note album that you were about to pile your shopping onto. I think that was 150 euros. But a very nice nick. And a, and the one I've just slipped in my bag you mean, no, before no, I leave. Well, you wouldn't because you're not interested. Ah, <laughs> uh, so that, in the same way that this movie sort of just races along fairly incoherently at quite a clip, is hopefully uh, holds the attention and then just kind of ends... I sort of feel what, that's what our podcast here has done. It has. There's one other bit I'd like to talk yeah, about please. from the film, which is also the one only woman, other woman in the film. Which well, is, we'd start, I won't, oh, was it the hooker they get? Yes, the yeah. sequence where he's basically told him that this woman is in charge of the, the crime people, you know, all the crime bosses. She's the one in charge. And he's taken him to her to talk to him. She's but, supposed to be a key witness, yeah, basically. Um, but she's really just a, a local prostitute, and he does a runner while she takes him through to the other room. Yeah, um, when you say he does a runner, this is the guy, Tommy, who, who sort of becomes the buddy cop, and it's, yeah. who I thought he was quite good. I thought he was a good actor, uh, an amusing character. 
But as a character, it doesn't work at all because they're only together for about, as far as I can tell, about two weeks. And by the end of it, Frank O'Neill is screaming, No, Tommy, no! When he's been (laughs) shot and you think, Well, come on, you barely knew the guy. Okay, I do have one more thing. There's a big shootout in a factory at the Mm. end. And one of the guys falls off uh, a railing down. He falls into a tank full of tropical fish. Yeah, isn't that brilliant? Every factory (laughs) has a tank full of tropical fish in it. When were you last in Italy? Okay, you're not going to sell that one to me. <laughs> oh, you don't know. Maybe all the factors I'd love have to go to Italy. Fish. If anybody wanted to, I would love me, to uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, a holiday <laughs> in Italy, searching for soundtrack. They had wonderful, rare soundtracks and jazz there. I want yes. to go over there searching for locations. Oh well, you can do that while I'm looking for records and exactly. trying the wine yeah. and the food. Well, you'll want the food too, so that's yeah. You can come in back in on that. But now is probably a good time to get cheap tickets. So I should look yeah, into it. Yeah, there's probably <laughs> there might be some other drawbacks. So. Okay, interesting yeah. film. So that's Street well Law. Yeah, yeah, you don't seem keen on that one, though. Well, uh, we're in, just to uh, to reveal how the sausage is made. We're going to be sitting down tonight talking about three films yeah. with intervals. Of those three films, this was the least distinctive. I would have said so. It's perhaps yeah. suffered from the company that it's in. But you know, you you got you got the message. I, I love the Angelus Brothers soundtrack. Very impressed with Franco Nero. I want to see Paul Weller be mean in other <laughs> movies. Uh, I'm intrigued by the, the visual style of Castellari, which often is very inventive. I love the realistic time capsule look where these are shot in real places, yeah. and that's like a little time wormhole back to them. And uh, I'm a bit incensed about the, the incoherence of the Italian screenwriter <laughs> in this instance. Right? The writer actually had some good credits to his name. And well, there's more than one, wasn't there? Yeah, the main writer. Uh, he'd done a lot of uh, other Castellari films, but yeah, they... The scripting team. Look, I'll agree, it's not a finished script at all, but I've got a feeling that happened during production. I think probably they had a good script to start off with, and then during production, things got changed. Yeah, and if they were going to change stuff, I just think they should have given Bob the Buck something to do. Because there's a lot of. <laughs> Let it go. This has been a podcast by Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. And very importantly, a big shout out to Joe Kramer, who did the fantastic theme music, which you heard at the beginning. 